Welcome everybody to the BJ360 podcast. We're lucky tonight to be sponsored by Striker, and we're talking a little bit about frontiers and hip replacement and we're specifically going to be focusing a little bit on robotics. So thank you very much Striker, for the support and I'm really fortunate to have two real leading experts in the um, hip field with me today. My name is Ben Oliveira, I'm the um, editor of 360 uh, and I'm joined tonight by Professor Faris Haddad who clearly needs no introduction. He's the um, editor of BJJ, he's a uh, key opinion leader within the hip world both nationally and internationally and it'd be really uh, interesting to hear what he has to say this evening and I'm also joined by Professor Ed Davies who um, is, has an interest in pre precision hip surgery, works at the Royal Orthopaedic in uh, Birmingham and is honorary professor at the University of Birmingham. So thank you very much gentlemen for joining me tonight. Um, Obviously, we are talking a little bit about frontiers and hip replacement, I guess, and we're talking specifically about robotic guided hips, but there's, there's potentially more to it than that. I mean, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a trauma surgeon and I do a little bit of hip replacement, but it's mostly hemiarthroplasty. I don't, don't venture beyond that really. And I'm just interested, you know, the literature which I'm, I'm interested in and read a lot of suggests that hip replacement is basically a solved problem. You know, the majority of patients, they get their cemented taper slip stem of whatever variety you like with a, a polyethylene cup and a ceramic head and, and you can expect that to last for the rest of their lives. So why are we even having the conversation Ed? Yeah I think that's a, that's a really good point. I mean it's the coin the operation of the century isn't it? It's an incredibly successful operation and the survivorship rates are, are incredibly good. I suppose my challenge back to you is do you want something just to be good or do you want it to be excellent or do you want to strive for perfection? And that just depends on your perspective, doesn't it? If you're a surgeon and you do hip replacements, you're going to get a lot of patients who are very grateful and thankful for what you've done. If you're a patient, you want to guarantee that it's going to be brilliant. You don't want to be okay, and you certainly don't want to be a bad outlier. So for me, it's striving for perfection of putting yourself in that patient's position that you want to be the one that gets the good operation. You don't want to be a bad outlier. And I think what's particularly interesting for people like me do hip and knee replacements. We've talked about knee replacements not being very good for a long time and about unfavorable outcome after knee replacement. But we don't really hear that much of it in hip replacement. When you go to meetings or you see people's talks, you get people, I don't know, climbing mountains, doing all sorts of sporting activities. But if you drill down into the functional outcome, that's not really what's happening in the real world. I mean, there's been some good literature on it about unfavorable outcomes. In knee replacement, what do we commonly quote? People are going to be dissatisfied about, what, maybe up to one in five. If you look at hip replacements, if you look at hip replacements we're still talking around maybe 10%. 10% of people being dissatisfied or, or have continuing pain. So I, I agree. I, I think we do well with hip replacements. Should we stop and just say, yes, that's okay? Or should we strive for perfection? I think there is a gap there that we need to fill. Ben, it's not even about perfection. It's the reality is that we've allowed ourselves to be seduced by the fact that patients start with terrible pain from osteoarthritis. And if we resolve some of that pain, that's regarded as a great outcome. And we've deluded ourselves with survivorship of the implant mm. as the outcome. But actually, uh, you know, our patient is going to be less accepting or 10, 15 who still have pain. So if actually, if you look at placements, then that a certain proportion still have some pain. It used to be dismissed as, you know, that's just bad luck, you've got pain. It's now increasingly investigated because we've learned cross-sectional imaging with metal on metal. But ultimately, there are lots of patients with pain because they may have altered biomechanics, they may have impingement, they may have all sorts of other things going on in their arthroplasty. Those are still patients that are great for their surgeon that have their hip arthritis pain usually removed and still count as a great success, for example, in the registry, because they may not come back for another operation. So those where errors happen and we see complications through instability, through fracture, through length inequality, through secondary symptoms elsewhere because of the errors that took place, even in that population that are generally deemed to do well with a forgiving operation. Actually, there are lots that don't do that well. And, you know, the question is, you know, do we have the resource? Do we have the time? Do we have the energy to push to improve those patients to make them better? And, you know, that may be the question is, is, is whether we've, that should be our focus right now. But if you're a hip surgeon and you want to be the best hip surgeon you can be, 
for your population of patients, then that's the direction of travel. It's, it's the way all other industries have gone. It's towards getting real aids to planning, real aids to execution. You know, at the moment, we need to understand where we're going and to be able to nail it and get there. And we're, we're, we're very close to that in the hip now. We weren't before. We were using surrogates. And do you think we're missing a trick? I mean, this is what I'm sort of alluding to, really. You know, we're looking at one thing and a huge amount of money has been expended in can we can we make a better better bearing surface? I'm not even going to mention, you know, ceramic on metal. Remember that a few years ago? You know, can we can we eke out for those few patients that are young and need those extra few years a little bit longer at great risk? relative to tried and tested technologies, be you a ceramic on ceramic person, a ceramic on poly person, or, you know, metal on poly person. Are we asking the right questions? You know, we, we look at the registry, we rely on functional outcomes in the registry, which is basically, you know, an Oxford HIP score that a number of patients return, but not everybody. We know there's, there's sampling errors. Are the outcome measures correct? Can they pick up these patients that aren't quite right? Or is it, is it just anecdote? So, so I think I'll just pick you up on that one then, Ben. So if you talk about metrics, so at the pre and six month proms that, that all our hips get sent. So if, if you look at that, we're not doing as amazing job as you would think. So if, if we look at the, the pre-op proms, if you look at the Oxford hip score and you ask how many patients had moderate or usually getting moderate to severe pain in their hip pre-op, that, that's over 90% of patients, of course. That's why they're having a hip replacement. If you look at that group six months post hip replacement, when, when they, they've, you know, their, their recovery is starting to definitely plateau, you've got about 15 to 16% of patients are still getting moderate to severe pain in their hip that they've had replaced. And that's, that's in England, mm. you know, within the last couple of years from NHS Digital. So 15% of patients are still getting moderate to severe pain in their hip post-hip replacement. That, that, that isn't the utopia of hip replacement that we kind of all think about, is it? It's not. And, and the funny thing is that that may well be below the MCID because the MCID for the Oxford hip score is surprisingly wide. So therefore gets reported as a, as a success in a, in a trial or in a cohort series, which I guess is what I'm driving at, is it define, depends what you define your outcome as, as to whether it's entirely successful. So, you know, give, given that and given what you've both said, which it makes a lot of sense about those patients who are outliers, the, the question I'd ask next is, you know, is it the case that every, patient's, every patient runs a risk of having a poor outcome or are there patients that you can select? What is the, you know, what is the driver of those poor outcomes? Is it poor implant position? Is it, you know, pre-existing things? I mean, Farah's mentioned leg length discrepancy. I remember being taught by Keith Tucker as a registrar and he had a massive thing about leg length discrepancy. And do you know what he was right? You know, the number of patients that you see in clinic where their leg lengths weren't quite right, even being really careful about it because they've got tight abductors or they've got, you know, w w whatever it is, there's lots of causes for it. What is it that drives those patients who aren't quite right? Farah's? So I think taking a step back, I think registry outcomes are very useful. It's something valuable to us, but actually, you know, in your clinic, in your patient population, you will recognize that there are some problems and, you know, there are multiple factors why patients run into problems. Sometimes there are patient related issues. There are patient selection issues. Sometimes it's the wrong implant and sometimes it's the wrong bearing and sometimes it's put in wrong. So I think, I think we make the mistake quite often of trying to funnel down on one solution that solves all the problems and it isn't one it's it's a cascade of things that will determine uh, whether that patient has a great outcome or not so you know once you realize that that risk is there once you also then realize that there are many people doing joint replacements every day and they can have a good day they can have a bad day they can have the right kit or the wrong kit they can have a scrub nurse who's experienced in hip replacement a scrub nurse who isn't experienced in hip replacement that that adds a whole load of variables and any technology that comes in that means that you have a number of checks along the way checks in your planning and checks in your execution and checks in what you deliver at the end of the operation is bound to reduce that variability, even for a good surgeon. So let's not even go to the, the people who aren't as well-trained as they could be or as diligent as they might be. Even for a good surgeon, if you give a good surgeon enhanced technology and they learn how to use it, that will help narrow you know, their 
they're outliers. Yeah, they, dare I say it, getting it right first time. That's sort of yeah, the, you know, of approach. Yeah, the, the, know, the minimizing the outliers. And, and and so what does I mean? We you know we are kind of talking around the maker, aren't we? But what what does the maker? I mean, you you use the maker in your practice. I'm guessing Farrows. Do you use it for every every hip? Do you use it for some? What's your what's your general approach to it? Yeah, and, and we should let Ed address this too. So no, we don't use it for every hip. I, I think one of the big things about maker is it it uh, delivers enhanced planning and delivery for the hip and the knee and so a lot of our focus has been on the knee so when you've got you know we've got one robotic arm in one hospital we've now got three at uclh which is fantastic one purely for research and two for clinical delivery in in principle we focused a lot on the knee where the gains are huge but in, in in the hip so we use it in study patients we use it in patients who have altered anatomy where we think it might be an advantage and we're increasingly using it when we've got the capacity to use it because it seems to deliver the biomechanics that we want and take away some of the headaches of worrying about leg length inequality. And, and in your hands, before we, before we come to her, because I'm sure we'll have a slightly different practice, in your hands, you know, timing's one of the things that worries people. You know, will I lose a joint off a list? Does it, does it make much difference to you personally as, you, as you're going through? Do you plan a less full list if it's got robotic cases on it? Yeah, so it's an interesting thing because there's no question there's a time learning curve to this. We've, we've published on this and collected a lot of data. So it adds a few minutes early on when you first start. You've got to get used to putting some pins in the pelvis to mount the array. Uh, and you've got to get your MPS, who's the person in theatre with you working the computer, working the robotic arm, uh, used to your workflow and, and adjust it. So it, it probably does add you know, 15 minutes when you first start there or thereabouts. Uh, does that lose you a case? It probably doesn't lose you a case. And we don't do a whole day of robotic assisted hips. We'll tend to do two or three on a list and uh, some that aren't. So, uh, or we'll do some knees as well. So there, there is definitely a learning curve time-wise, but that plateaus and evens out pretty quickly. I don't know what Ed's experience is. Ed? Okay, well, well, if I had the chance, I'd use the robot on every single patient for sure outcome driven or is that preference as in do you prefer using the robot or do you think your patients do better i think it's both so, so for me it's what Karen touched on there a minute ago it's consistency isn't it so, so we're human beings it doesn't matter how good you are sometimes you will do a better job than others over the last 15 years i've been using hip navigation for doing hip replacements what's that's taught me is that despite doing a few hundred hip replacements every year i am pretty rubbish at doing a hip replacement because i get it wrong and the amount of times i've over the years i'll just look at an assistant and say look at that i would have got that completely wrong had i not used the navigation and got feedback but what it also teaches you it is giving you that instant feedback to show you that sometimes you do get it wrong and, and try and work out and rationalize why you get it wrong, which goes back to your question to begin with about picking those patients that, that might be more vulnerable and might be the outliers, which, yes, we know some patients that, that might be tricky, but, but sometimes just a routine hip replacement and you end up getting it completely wrong. So for me, I'd use it every time. That's partly because Maybe I'm a little bit of a nervous surgeon and, and I can't stand imperfection. So I want to so use So you're it. a hip surgeon then, Ed? That's, that, that's the description of a hip surgeon? Yeah, but I've been a patient in the past. Yeah, I, I want perfect surgery. You know, when I had my neck done, I, I didn't want to be the surgeon's outlier. If, if he could have used technology to take my disc out and do my fusion, you know, then that's what I wanted. I, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't, wouldn't, want, wouldn't be the patient on an off day. However... Well, I do understand that we are doing CTs. We are affecting process. It is a very expensive technology. We haven't got the evidence at the moment about the economics of doing that. We also, I think we're probably going to work out some patients when we acquire more data, we will be able to predict the patients that might be the outliers and are more at risk, which is what you touched on. Because one of the benefits of this technology is you do acquire a huge amount of information on the system and you have pre-op CT imaging on it. So I think in the future, we will be able to predict much better those patients that are at risk. Teasing out from the various things that you've talked about. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting. So, so I, I think it's fair to say that quite a lot of orthopedic surgeons are slightly suspicious of, of robotics at the moment. And, and I'm married to a general surgeon and if they went through this process 10 years ago, actually, in pretty much every hospital in the country, if you're having colorectal surgery or upper GI surgery has a robot available for lots of reasons. And there's lots of reasons that they do that. And we're kind of on, on the beginning of this journey and it's difficult to tease out the benefits. So, so you talked 
partly about navigation, I guess. So that that's potentially part of it is making sure you get it in the right place at the right time. Partly about, you know, outliers not be, wanting to be the one that that does poorly. And, you know, I've had surgery from one of my colleagues and similarly was, you know, really worried about being the patient that gets the infection or because we've all seen that. And we, we've all, you know, we've all had that, that experience ourselves and everybody wants your patient to do the best possible. And then the third thing, which I guess I'm not quite clear on yet in my own mind is, does it let you do things that you otherwise can't do? Or is it just that you do each case better? Because one of the things in general surgery that's happened in the evolution of, of their own experiences as they started doing more and more robotics, they're able to do more and more complex operations because the robot is actually much more dexterous than a person. No two ways about it. You know, it's a, it is a more controlled process. So I think there is a difference, Ben, between the cavity robots, where, as you say, getting into the pelvis with the da Vinci is, you know, is, is game changing in terms of what you can do. At the moment, and I think you've got to imagine we are on a journey, we're slightly later on a journey, but at, at the moment, we're essentially doing what we do manually, just doing it more reproducibly, you know, in the hip with less reaming, less bony debris, potentially less inflammatory response from that and all the other consequences of that. And being able to assess the position that you're putting the hip in, the potential impingement, the length, the offset, all those variables that you spend your time worrying about. So at the moment, I don't think it changes the nature of the operation or what you can do, but that's the potential. If you, if you really, you know, you take this to the nth degree, whether you're talking about the hip or the knee, it's essentially evaluating a patient, evaluating a patient four-dimensionally, a three, 3D scan plus their gait, plus, you know, what, how they move, looking at that and then determining what that patient needs and then being able to deliver it. And, and we will very soon, I suspect, start seeing implants that are purely on a robotic platform in the next 10 years. That was, that was what I was alluding to was actually, you know, the big constraint with implant design is the fact a person's got to put it in, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, manual instruments. And I know we're talking about the hip today, but, you know, in the knee, we've, in a randomized pilot study, we've seen a, you know, differential reduction in the inflammatory response when we've used the robotic arm, we've used Mako compared to manual techniques. Thinking about those difficult acetabuli where you can now get 3D printed things. But actually, the the you know the the cuts required in order to put something in precisely accurately are just beyond a person, aren't they? Beyond perhaps a double bubble, and that's about all you can. Unless things have moved on dramatically since I was last involved in revision hip surgery, I can't believe anybody's more dexterous than they were ten years ago. Yeah, your thoughts, Ed? Yeah, I, I agree, and I think where this is going to get particularly exciting is when we take it on to the revision type work for, for exactly what you talk about, which is burring, making complex geometries for acetabular reconstruction. I think that is interesting. What I think just going back to the primaries, I, I totally agree with Farris. I, I think the robot just makes us better at doing the job that we were doing before. I think one interesting thing, which is what, what I've experienced, which is the comparison of navigation to robots, it is the benefit of the robot controlling the reamer particularly when you've got a deformed acetabulum and you might have more scrotic bone on one side than the other. And when you're trying to hold a reamer and control it, you do get deviation where, where the reamer can be deviated off path and you end up with an abnormal center of rotation. Whereas one of the benefits of, of the robot is it can control the position of that reamer. So, so you get it right in the, in, in the perfect position. It doesn't deviate so much. So that it, I think that is one of the benefits that we will start to see, which is the whole reconstruction of center of rotation. But but yeah, I think I think when you want to get really excited about complex geometries, then the robot's going to come in the revision situation, which which you can't use it for at the moment. But but I'm sure that will come. Ben, at a very practical level, all trainees, all young surgeons will recognise the difficulty of getting access in an overweight patient. Our population is getting bigger; it's getting heavier. It's, you know, getting the socket right in someone who, where you can barely get access, can't get the angle you like. Suddenly you've got a device that will put it where you want it put. And, you know, people won't admit that that's difficult, but frankly, it is difficult to, to do. And th this just removes that doubt from your mind. Does it reduce the variation in operative time associated with obesity? You know, we, we've gone backwards and forwards. There's, there's lots and lots of data to show that if you're obese, you suffer more complications, what, whatever that is, whether it's infection, whether it's, and, and some of it is to do with actually the surgery just being longer. 
you know, and just having bigger wounds. Do you think there's a, a benefit there or do you think it is that you, you have the same problems in terms of access and the patient's still longer on the table, but you just get a better result at the end? So it's a good question. We haven't got data to answer that. So I don't have data to answer that, but you still need to get access. You still need to be able to see, you still need to be able to get the arm in. So I don't think it is the, the paradigm shift there that it would be to go from open to laparoscopic with a, with a cavitary robot. But, but, ne but nevertheless, that security that you know that you're going to get the position right, even though you are really struggling to get that yeah. angle is reassuring. And it's also on, from that perspective, just to open up something else for you, you may wish to come back to is it's an unbelievably good teaching and training tool. You've stolen my question. I was trying to butt in and say, can we talk about teaching and training? Because you mentioned trainees and now, now you've stolen my question, Farah. So again, I look like I'm following on your on your coattails. So there's well, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask, actually, which which I guess to Ed first. So, so you talked about, you know, you do your robotic surgery and you've you've got this volume of data that you're collecting one of the things that that was a big shift for me when i started as a consultant which i was i was disastrously upset to find is nearly 10 years ago now so I'm, I'm no longer kind of the young person in the department which is i guess one of those things that we all face as we get older is that i was able to see my patients go through and some of them go through four or five years i've got some patients now been with me nearly a decade and, and you see your own results and there's nothing you don't get that as a trainee and with with one of the things that I have also found is you can't quite remember what you did. You know, the ones that do well and the ones that don't do well, sometimes you can't tease out what the difference is. Is there any benefit? Do you ever find yourself going back through the system and saying, actually, you know, did, did I do this? Is that why this patient's had this result? I mean, there's no question having the session files and having the data there is an advantage when you've got questions to ask later on. You know, if a patient's still got pain and you can't quite work out. You go back and check what you did. And that's, it, it's, I mean, there's so much more to this data that we're going to be able to use moving forward from planning to ultimately to automation. You know, you can just imagine that, that uh, the, the sort of amount of decision-making that we enjoy doing now, that Ed enjoys, that I enjoy, because that's part of the fun of doing things where you get lots of data, will eventually, all this data will be used, correlated with outcomes and using, a, you know, using AI and machine learning will be able to, predict who needs what uh, i think that's that that'll be that'll be really cool but but yes absolutely right on a practical level right now and you know we've had we, we got our, we got our mako in 2016 so we've had it for five years so far from our first mako when whether it's hip or knee if something's not quite right we go back to the session files and try and you know get some feedback try and learn uh, at, uh, what, what do you find so when you so the patient comes back right they've got a hip that isn't quite right and you you know because I've, I've never you know I've, I've seen the robot at, a, at a, a trade show but I've never used one so patient comes back you know they've got a they've got a painful hip or a hip that doesn't quite let them do what they want to do they feel quite partly unstable what what data is available to you Ed and Farris what do you look at what what how does it help you with your decision making I mean I think you you can quickly go back and see did you plan and get the center of rotation right did you get the length right did you get the offset right you know did you miss size the implants because you've you've basically got a haptic you've got a plan you you can refer to that I mean a practical example so so at UCLH we've we've now got one of the the hub centers so we've just expanded into a new building we've got some new surgeons coming in they've been trained and then you know one of the surgeons very worried about his post op x-ray and in in reality you know, he'd done a good job, but he'd planned to go a little bit deeper than the original plan and therefore had suddenly noticed that he was deeper on the post-op x-ray because what you plan is what you deliver. And it was very useful to be able to go back and say, look, this plastic hip, in order to get it covered anteriorly, what you probably needed to do was antivert a bit more rather than medialize. And those are the, the things you can go back and you can, right. you can educate people and people, you know, it's, it's a great lesson learned with good data. Ed, what do you, what's your approach? I agree. I, if, if you go back, you can see everything from, from your plan. You, as far as I said, all those sort of things, you can also look at your antiversion and your, your cup orientation. So the, the, there's two other things there. I, I think that the robot compared to navigation, the, the, the beautiful thing about navigation is it's much more you're doing it on the fly, whereas there's less pre-op planning. It happens during the case and you're getting feedback. So from, from learning your mistakes, the navigation was much better because you, you actually 
you you put the wrong trials in and then you take the measurements and you can see that they are the wrong trials and you can change them. The difference with a robot, of course, is you don't make mistakes because you plan it and then you execute the plan. So so you, you don't you don't experience things when they feel wrong because you've planned it right from the beginning. I think the other point here, which is really, really key, is the robot comes with the Mako product specialist. So when when I walk in the room, the Mako product specialist has already done a plan of what they think I want to do. So they've worked with me before, they know what I like, and they have already done that. And it's already sitting on the on the system for me to then come in and make my final changes. And, and that and, comes with the robot, doesn't it? Everybody who has yeah. a robot, they get it. And is that a is that a, for, for the uninitiated? Is that something you pay on a case by case basis, or is there a sort of rental fee that includes the the person, or how does how does that work? They just um, come with. They just come with it. <laughs> yeah. Just come with it well, forever. So you've had your. <laughs> it's akin to your rep that you, that that used to wander into when you used to do your hip replacements. So so it, it, it's that's the service that's provide. The, the other interesting thing is you can't turn the robot on without the maker product specialist who holds the key. So that was, oh, that that was, was a big me up leap. the wall. Yeah. I, so I, it was a big leap for me from navigation where I used to wheel the machine in and wipe it all down and get the dust off it and then just play around with it. And if it didn't work, then I was on my hands and knees fiddling with it. The, the, the maker product specialist is is the person that sorts the robot out. But 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 I think for me it's about having that individual that you're talking to who understands what you like. So when you do have a complicated case, they're asking you, well, why have you changed that? Which then makes you think, well, have I changed it right? So it, it, it stimulates the process of deep thinking as to have I got it right um, or do we need to change this? And then if I'm struggling, they'll go, well, what happens if you change your antiversion or do you think that the patient's got a different, different tilt there? What do you think we should do here? So it is like having another expert in the room that you can, you can have a good discussion with. I think in, in one of the trials that we've got running, it does come in. We, we have deep discussions about what, what is it? it? Does the Mako product specialist actually bring a huge advantage to the outcome of your patient? Because it is like having the most experienced rep while you're doing your case, talking to you about it. So, so that's an interesting observation that I've got is, is, is the benefit of having somebody in the room that you can talk to that, that challenges you, I suppose, on your plan. I'm not sure. Do they ever challenge you, Farrah's, or is it just me? They tell me no, I've done it wrong. No, no. I, we've had some, you know, we, we've been very lucky and we've had some great Mako product specialists, including an engineer when we first started using it, who actually we got involved in designing some of the research questions and in what we measured. And that, that was really in, incredibly valuable that feedback. I think one of the elements that's kind of coming out, Ben, which is important to stress is that this is enhanced planning as mm. well as enhanced execution. You know, you measure twice, cut once. It, 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 it's really a, a great challenge to people's minds to be able to truly define what they are wanting to achieve in a hip or a knee operation. It, you know, we're, we're kind of used to having a fairly broad target and you're narrowing the target down to mm. what it is commit to exactly what you want to do for this case. You don't have that. And does it help you with the next case that you do that isn't a robotic case? So there's a kind of Hawthorne effect here, isn't there, which is, you know, I don't subscribe to this, you know, I don't subscribe to this, but there is a kind of, there is a kind of conveyor belt mentality amongst, you know, particularly managers. And, and in fact, sadly, some of our own colleagues in terms of the way that they want to put patients through as quickly as possible in order to, you know, treat as many people as possible. And sometimes that kind of conveyor belt approach, you know, does does result in people not thinking. And if you're forced to think because you can't do it without thinking, presumably, actually, some of that thought process comes across into the patients as well, particularly for trainees and people who are rotating in and out, you know, and they, they come in and they see a couple of robot cases and then a couple of non-robot cases. Do you let trainees do a robot case you've got at UCLH? Is that something that they do? No, no, we do. They do. In fact, it's an ideal thing because in, in some respects, I know exactly what they're Don't doing. Don't mess it up. You know, <laughs> you know it's, 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 it's even for my fellows, it's difficult for them to, uh, to, to, to get it wrong. No, no, I think there's a huge value to, you know, at, at a very basic, very simple level, recognizing what, let's say, 40, 20 is again and again and again when it's actually reproduced mm. and, and you know it's right. And then when you go to do the next case, then you know it's right again and you can adjust 
to that when you're doing your manual case. So I think in terms of, you know, navigation taught us that you actually go mm. back. If you've navigated and get that feedback as a surgeon or as a trainer to a trainee, you come back. And so you've got that added advantage in and you know ben at the moment we have a huge backlog in this country so i think you know we're, we're duty bound to do a high volume of surgery and high volume surgery makes you better so uh, i think this is a great way of enhancing the patient journey you're getting it right and i think when you get it right patients feel better they move better you know our, our data is that the knees in particular feel much better than my manual knees and I, you know i've been in this game for a long time uh, I thought my annual knees were pretty decent, but actually mm. we, we've, you know, Ed's doing the, the the national racer study to look at that in really in more detail in the hip and the knee, but certainly in my practice, the signal's been quite significant. So, so talk, just talking about function, because there is one thing, there's something that I do want to talk about because it's, you know, it's in it's in all the papers. It's in every every edition of the journal, pretty much that you you edit, Farris. It's in every every edition of 360, and 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 that's the kind of, you know, the approach thing with anterior approaches to the hip. So you know, we're talking really about improving function, and there is some increasing evidence that actually muscle preserving approaches may give better function for certain patients at the cost of complications. You know, there's no there's no doubt in the data that's out there that in fact it is much more difficult to do an anterior hip than 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 any other type of hip and it does appear as, as an observer who avidly reads the literature that in fact people don't quite get that and that the problem happens when you end up with the occasional anterior hip approacher how where do you see these two things kind of kind of colliding i guess i mean you know is there an advantage to using a robot in terms of complications and implant placement with an anterior hip is it hard to the two go hand in hand or, or is it a different approach to the same problem so maybe I'll start and let Ed give his perspective. So, so I think there have been a lot of minimal incision, minimally invasive type approaches in the hip, but I think the anterior approach is likely to be here to stay. It's gained enough momentum uh, and there is some good data out there. There are possibly some sort of short-term advantages over the first few weeks. I, I doubt there are significant long-term advantages. It's it's probably still important to remind everybody that getting the, the you know, the good fixation and durable fixation is probably the most important thing. Having said that, it's something that's still with us. It's something that we need to train people on early because the problems with the anterior approach happen for the occasional user or the late adopter who tends to struggle. Now, if you take the anterior approach, you know, access is difficult. You know, I've done it and I've got colleagues doing it and I've got really good surgeons as colleagues who do it only selectively, which tells you that actually in some patients, it's very hard. Yeah. Uh, so their technology can help. And people tend to use the image intensifier, you know, be there wearing lead, having, you know, sweaty operations with, with, with radiation. Well, well, I'm a trauma surgeon. Whereas actually you, you can, exactly, just like a trauma surgeon, God, <laughs> God help us as hip surgeon if we have to end up <laughs> sinking to that level, Ben. But it's, this is an opportunity to basically get the components right without necessarily yeah. needing to, to have a lot of radiation exposure. So, so I think it's the, the, the potential for MAKO plus the anterior approach is massive. And, you know, the anterior approach is not as big in the UK as it has been in the US elsewhere, but I'm sure it will grow and patients come in asking about it all the time. So I think it's an ideal, ideal combination. It's, I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Just, just before going to Edward's perspective, you know, I remember, you won't remember this, Harris, but in, I think, probably 2006, as a first year registrar, I went and presented the Hip Society and the, the, the session was chaired by one Faris Haddad, who gave me a really, really hard time, actually, after, as I stumbled up to give my first ever public presentation, I distinctly recall it. He stood up and ripped me to pieces, but there we are. It shows that life hasn't moved on for me. But the, the interesting thing is, and, you know, is that actually the, there's clearly a problem here because I remember, and I went to hip society every year for the focus. I thought I wanted to be a hip surgeon before I realized I wasn't good enough. The, you know, the, every hip society I went to, there was symposium. It was, it was dual, dual incision posterior approach. I seem to recall that was trendy for a bit. And there was, you know, mini anterolateral and all those things. So there's clearly a problem with muscle sparing. And there's also a problem with complications associated with small incisions. And there's also clearly a problem with outliers because all those things in, in the, you know, the 15 interval intervening years haven't been solved and are still being discussed. But anterior hips seem to be here to stay. And robotics seems to be here to stay as well because of the things that we talked about. So, so where, where does that fit with you, Ed? You, we, you know, I understand you're not an avid anterior approacher. No, I'm not. I'm afraid I was, I was hoping you weren't going to ask me because I've got quite, quite firm views on it. And I suppose my views come from wanting to do no harm for the learning curve aspect of exactly what 
what you and Faraz have been talking about. For me, I can't justify the potential harm while I learn the anterior approach for the ultimate benefits, which I, which I think you've covered very nicely, which is possibly that the improvement in the early post-op phase and certainly no improvement once you get past that. Why would I hurt potentially hurt some patients to, to get that amount of benefit? Uh, I think also just just my view on, on that last bit you said about there's clearly a problem because we keep on trying to innovate. I challenge you, may, maybe it's actually not a problem with the approach. Maybe it's just the fact that we're always trying to innovate and we're trying to come up with new stuff and trying to, to, to just change things around. What the, what the difference in approach has done is probably stop the old shark bite approaches where you'd have an incision a foot and a half long to do a primary hip replacement. So, so in, in whatever approach you use, you, you've done it through a sensible sized incision rather than overly large. Do I think that anterior approach may be improved for the use of a robot? Clearly, yes. I mean, uh, some of the complications that you're going to get in your learning curve while you're learning the anterior approach can be solved by a robot, the component orientation, your broaching to try and make sure you're broaching in the right direction if you're using what we call the enhanced workflow to try and reduce femoral fractures because you've planned it and then hopefully you're not going to overbroach it. So do I think there, there is an advantage using the robot if you were to go down the anterior approach. Absolutely. Do we have evidence yet that that says that Ed should start doing the anterior approach with a robot? No, I don't think we have at the moment. So I'm sticking to my posterior approach consistently, trying to do it as best I can. And, and if we do get that evidence in the future, then yeah, maybe I'll change. I just want to point out there as well, when we're talking about learning curves, I was talking to the medical student just earlier today about this because I had a patient asked if I'd do their hip through the anterior approach and I explained why not. And I said to him that, that actually when we look at robots, we talk about a learning curve, but that's not a harm learning curve. That's just a time learning curve. Mm -hmm. So we need to be careful. Learning curves mean different things. What I'm worried about is a harm causing learning curve. If it's just I'm going to take slightly longer, then that, that's not such a big problem for me, which I think is key with both navigation and robotics. It's just time. It's not harm. Presumably that's where your man with the key comes in because he knows all about how you should plan it. And so you can't tell the robot to do something ridiculous in your first few cases. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having, having a segmented plan that somebody else has looked at is a good sort of sense check. Although yeah. I have to say, I think, you know, we look at the plan and we, we often do change the plan because you you know what you like to do and you know your patient and you know always remember you've examined the patient you know what their spinal oh, status yeah. is you know what their fixed pelvic contractures are you know you, you know what's happened to their knee or their lower leg before so there are lots of other factors that will come in so that the clinical uh, picture playing into that plan is quite important I know quite clearly, but the, I guess what I was trying to get at was that, you know, with any new technique, when you've got somebody there who's familiar with it, if you're a competent hip surgeon and you know how to do a hip replacement, that, that seems to me to be a sensible thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and we'll, I noticed you said past tense, Faris, with many of your, many of your MAKO attendees. I wonder whether they were the ones that challenged you or not, or whether they, whether they moved on elsewhere. <laughs> you said we've had some brilliant ones when asked if they, if they challenged you. The <laughs> no, no, no. It, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting part. Of, I, I look at it as an entire process. And I think you're, you're right in terms of, as Ed was saying, in terms of the research question, is it the CT? Is it the interaction with that person? Is it the plan? Is it the robotic execution? You know, is it the fact that there are haptic boundaries? Is it the fact that you ream less? There are lots of potential variables here that may all help to change outcome, help to improve outcome. But I think, the, you know, the, the, the maker product specialists have been you know, amazingly helpful. And, you know, challenge is always a good thing. You know, that's why we, you know, it's why we enjoy having fellows and they come and go and they, they really make you think harder and ask different questions. So I think, I think that's key. Of course they do. And it's, you know, planning isn't, isn't completely out with my area of expertise, you know, frame surgery and osteotomies and, and corrective length stuff's all about planning. And, and it is amazing how you learn when you have to put it down on the computer. And at the end, you've got your x-ray and it either looks like you suggested on the computer or you didn't. And, and it is a, you know, it's a really humbling experience when you get to the end of the case and you realize, in fact, you didn't do quite what you expected. And perhaps you wouldn't have known if you hadn't sat down and done it to start with. Um, so just just sort of we got another couple of minutes, I guess, before we before we round up. There's a couple of things that that 
strike me in my, in my mind you know you talked about 40 20 I come whether it's Ferris or Ed and you know a, a challenge question I guess because I never like to just accept handed down wisdom you know is it the case that if you can place an acetabular component more accurately do, do you always need to put it the same no, absolutely not absolutely not Ben so I, I think I'll, I'll let Ed expand on that but the, the beauty is it should not always be the same 4020 was just an example you know I, of, I, of, of, of something you could replicate the, the beauty of the modern software is that actually you can look at you know combine what you've got with your CT with your spinopelvic alignment and adjust for that patient and you know the, the safe zone concept is an outdated concept you can now actually look at the potential collisions look at potential impact mm -hmm. in your planning and adjust and, and you know one of the things we do in hip replacements changed last few years we do a femur first approach we we kind of look to see what where the femur is going to sit what version the femur is going to be at before we do the socket so i mean ed may want to expand on that but i think that's one of the beauties of mako 4.0 that the recent software we've had is that not only are you able to have a plan and hit an accurate plan you can also adjust that plan to reduce the the, the risk of impingement so so when you when you're planning it presumably you're not getting standing ct scans no we're not we, we, we're getting a supine CT, although there is, you know, we're doing some work. We're trying to get to standing CT. I think that would be really cool. The foot and ankle surgeons have got there ahead of us. Well, but, uh, that was my thought. If you're looking at, if you're looking at, you know, pelvic inclination and how the spine moves and all that kind of thing, actually sitting and standing is what you want, isn't it? You, know, you want a CT with them in the two positions of function. So, so let, let's just say, Ed, you know, you, you've got this, got this difficult case. How, how does it change how you approach it? You know, you've got somebody with a, with a, an unusual pelvic obliquity. What 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 difference is your workflow if that patient sees you in one hospital where they can have a Mako, and in the other hospital where you can't? Because it seems like you're sort of living that kind of dual life where sometimes you get what you want and sometimes you don't. Yeah, so it's a really good point, and, and I was hoping you cover that because it's a mythbuster, isn't it? So what what I get hit with a lot of the times is that's fine, Ed. You know, it's really expensive technology, but you don't know where you want to put the hip. So that's an excuse to not bother to adopt technology, and that's clearly not true. As Farah said, one of the big step changes, the range of movement type algorithms that we've got now. So we get the CT supine and then we get a standing and sitting lateral pelvis X-ray where we measure the, the inclination of the, the pelvis, essentially. So we can correct for that. So we put that information into the software. Um, and that, and that's built in. So, so yeah, let, let, let's say that one of our hip surgeons, you know, decides that he's good enough to do a Mako. And um, he gets a Mako, Paris is laughing because he knows what I'm alluding to. And he gets his lateral films sitting and standing and actually you just put them into the software. You don't need any special, it's not something you're doing specially in Birmingham, it's part of the system. It's part of the system. You don't have to put that extra information in. You can just do your plan off your, your supine CT. If you want to correct it for, for pelvic tilt and you know, spinal pelvic motion, et cetera, you can put it in. Uh, and then what the software then does, as far as alluded to, is, is it will allow you to take the hip through a virtual range of movement and you can look at where the hip is impinging in sitting and standing positions and then alter your component orientation to try and minimize that. Whether it's bone on bone collision, whether it's implant on implant collision, it will show you all those, all those collision points. And then that takes us back to the education, doesn't it, of when you see that the hip's impinging, when you're flexing up to 90 degrees and you've got five degrees of internal rotation, which is awful, that, that then you start to sit back and think, right, okay, so so how are we going to make that better? Mm -hmm. What do we need to change? Does that come from our acetabular positions? It come from our femoral torsions? It come from our offset? What 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 do we now do? And then you rerun it and you find that you've improved that little bit, and then you can tweak it and you can keep on getting it better. So so it is truly an individualized position. It, it's not one size fits all. So it, it's how it, often that, does that does that change your plan? You know, I remember I remember way back when writing papers about, you know, templating for hips with coins that you put between the knee and, you know, really, really rudimentary things. And, you know, you, you, you'd say in it, victoriously, well, it tells you plus or minus one size. And you think well, there's only four sizes. But, you know, thankfully, those papers got published and, and that helped me progress in my career. But, you know, how often when you do that and you put in your sitting standing x-ray, it sounds pretty neat, actually, does it change your your plan you know how often do you find that you're actually going well actually this isn't quite right i'll need more offset or i need a slightly different size head you know what what differences yeah. make to you in real terms 
Absolutely, Ben. I think that's a really good point. And and you you can you can get caught up in the detail here, can't you? So you can start you can just sit there fiddling around the plan if you want for hours, just trying to get a few extra degrees with it. So it depends on on on, on what you're happy to achieve from the hips. And, and the honest answer to this is we don't know at the moment because this technology is is new. And that goes back to acquiring these log files and then running, you know, running all this data through to see which are the patients and what are our tolerances? What should be our what should we be looking for for range of movement before we get impingement? That's probably, again, going to be personalized on what the individual activities they want to get back to, etc. But a lot of these questions, we just don't know the answer to, to yet because we haven't had the ability to, to acquire this information, but also we haven't had the ability to put the hips in in the right position. So we're, we're still learning on that. And, and you're right, it seems excessive, doesn't it, to take standing and sitting lateral x-rays and have a CT scan on every single primary hip I'm doing. And, and I think- I'm, I'm not sure it does. And, and you know, this isn't, this isn't said to any, any motivation of, you know, if I was 50 and I wanted a hip replacement, I was stuck with for the next 20 years. You know, actually I'd rather have the x-rays, thanks. You know, when I when I do a limb reconstruction for patients with deformity or any of those things, that's really what you're talking about. You know, it, it is a limb reconstruction. That's what the US people call it. I, I often get a CT and an MRI scan. I get leg length measurement films and I spend ages with the patients before I before I do my procedure. I think we kind of owe it to our patients. And if it was me, actually, I'd want the x-rays, wouldn't you? Oh, you converted, Ben. You're saying all the right things. I'm not converted. You're basically both closet <laughs> limb reconstruction. You know, if you want to come and spend a bit of time with me on my fellowship, I can show you how to put TSFs on. It'd be wonderful. You know, you wouldn't just have to do these tin hip things. Yeah, I think the point is that I'm sure we will have, once we acquire all this data, we will be able to reduce the number. We will be able to predict those hips that mm. are going to be the troublesome hips that, that will need the extra imaging. And again, just forgive my naivety, you know, a CT isn't a CT isn't a CT. So, you know, I don't get fine slice CTs for, for lots of my patients. I do for bone infection and stuff where I want to know whether, you know, do you need a scanogram? Do you need a, do you need a, a full CT? Do you need a four mil slice? Can, can you get away with a standard relatively rapid CT or, or, or do you need something that's a bit more, bit more specialist? It's a specific CT. Uh, it's, it's a specific CT for them to be able to segment and give yep. you the plan, Ben. So it is. So it's a it's a, it's a specific Mako CT. They come and load it onto the CT scanner, and they acquire it in that in that yeah. way. And does that yeah. does that? We didn't really cover that when we last talked about it. And in, in the knee thing, does that does that pose any difficulties? You know, can you get that on every CT scan in in your department, or do they have to go through a specific CT? Is there a? No, no it just it's it's, it's, a, it's a fairly straightforward sequence acquisition. Very straightforward. Okay. Um, and the radiation exposure is relatively minimal. You know, we've, we've, as, as far as alluded to, we've got two studies running, uh, one in the knee and one in the hip. Uh, and as you know, that the way that we acquire CTs now reduces radiation right down. Yeah. Uh, actually, that the highest radiation that I worry about is getting me standing and sitting lateral x-rays. Yeah. Um, I mean, a pretty high dose. The evidence is pretty clear, actually. The worst thing we do to patients is spinal plane films. Yeah. You know, calibrated multi-detector CT scan in somebody who's over the age of 50 just it isn't it isn't really an issue you shouldn't do it every week but you know it's like going on holiday to to cornwall for a couple of days isn't it you know it's not or taking those transatlantic flights so you know i agree um so from is there, is there anything to add gents we've covered an awful lot you know we, we've we've covered why what how to do it but question for me you know do you have to use a striker implant can you use any kind of hip or, or do you have to use a striker implant so, so with, with mako it is a a striker platform and so you have to use striker implants with it it's it's planned yeah, and done yeah. and i think that you know there, there is a, there is an issue there in that there will be there are other robotic platforms out there particularly in the knee but there will be in the hip and i think in terms of the world we live in we, we're going to have to need we're going to have to get data on each it, they're all mm -hmm. going to be different it's a different journey with each one and having a system that has a ct plus spine x-rays plus an mps plus a robotic arm will be different from a system that's largely navigation based and i think you've got to just bear that in mind the literature will, will need to be looked at very carefully for all of this i mean we're pretty much there with safety outcomes aren't we it's it's the it's the functional outcomes and the health economics that's going to be a bit difficult to a bit difficult to choose and work out you know i mean and and it is it is 
I don't think necessarily requires a very large randomized controlled trial, but there is that there is that question, isn't there? You know, it does does data with one implant from a robot from one manufacturer apply to a different implant from the same manufacturer, same robot or not? And or, or do you actually have to teach each one and teach each one in the same way that, you know, the in, in the same way that the ODET panel would, you know, to, is it the case that each acetabulum, each stem needs its own needs its own verification with the robot or not it seems to me probably not because they're two different things aren't they one is does it position the implant correctly and the second is does the implant work but i guess that's uh that's another question does the registry do they collect whether it was robotic now or do they not i was hoping you're going to bring that up and because i think this is really important because as, as we progress with technology the technology becomes vital in how it performs but, but of course, it's not just the technology, it's more the software versions as well. We've just been talking about how the most upgraded, sorry, most recent Striker um, software has this functionality in it. I, I think as we move forward, it's going to be absolutely imperative that we not only collect information about the robot or the navigation system that was used to put the implant in, but also the software version. Uh, otherwise, the, the, the data is going to be meaningless where we're going to draw incorrect conclusions from it. So at the moment, the, the registry allows us to put whether it was computer navigation or whether it was robotic, and if it's robotic, which robot. My biggest concern at the moment is we're not putting in which version of the software we're using so that there's, there's confusion there potentially. So I think this is an interesting area that, that we need to be cautious on as we move forward. And and your 2016 robot, Faris, does that use the latest 4.0 version of the software is there any difference between your three robots you know if you buy one now is it still as good as the one you buy in six years time so, so no they the software evolves and you can upgrade the software as you go but you can imagine the machines will you know the robotic yeah. arms will change in a few years time so i think you've got to be ready to move with that because they you know they get slicker they get smaller they get better and what they, what they do and you know we we can I, I can imagine what the next generation of mako is going to look like mako x in black with a silver a silver side because apple sets the sets the <laughs> sets the fashion doesn't it and fi final question i guess and this is an interest for me you know servicing do you do you have time when it's not available you know we, we have this terrible problem in our place you know you can't get enough sets around they don't get turned around quick enough you know and and so on. And it, does, does somebody have to come in and service this thing to make sure that it's safe and good? And do they do that on a Saturday? Or well, you probably do joint replacement on Saturday for us because you, 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 yeah, you do. There you go. Probably Sunday and Sunday night as well. Um, you know, did, is, is that an issue? Is there a time when you can't use it? Like all, you, know, you, you have to service everything, but it, it's not, we've not had any downtime. It's, mm. it's, it's always, you know, booked in at a time that works for, yeah, for, it, for, for, for the unit. And for everybody. So I don't know if Ed's had a problem with that, but we haven't had a problem. No, absolutely not. My, my only problem once was when somebody unplugged the robot. So it needs to remain charged so that the battery has its battery backup. And then somebody came in and unplugged it and left it unplugged over the weekend, which meant we were slightly delayed in starting the case. But but no, that they, they, they service it whenever they can out of hours. The, the other thing is that the one of the things the NPS does right at the beginning of the case is just run through the whole calibration process for you. So, so the robot is checked before any time you use it. So it's, it's fully calibrated uh, again, which is one of the benefits of the NPS. You kind of get a, a mini service and a check that everything's working before you start your case. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, gentlemen. Is there anything to add or have we covered pretty much everything to do with robots and hips and the future and everything else? I, th I think we've converted you from a trauma surgeon into someone who has was, a little bit was, of understanding of the future of hips, Ben, which yeah. is great. I was going to say, Gary, We've got fellowship adverts out at the moment. If you want to apply and let me know secretly what your application number is, I'll pull it out of the pile. And, you know, you could do Limrecon as well in the, the three minutes spare you have every month. <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank you very much, gentlemen. Have a lovely evening. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Ben.